Thank you so very much. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. In God's providence, we're back in the book of Revelation this Sunday. And very fittingly so, I think, in light of all that's taking place right now. Obviously, as we mentioned already, and as you're very well aware of, uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, world leaders are concerned about what's going to happen, not only in Ukraine, but maybe even beyond Ukraine. Um, oil and gas prices are high and may, might go higher. Stock market is uncertain. Um, even this morning I read where um, the leader of Russia is um, putting his uh, country on nuclear alert. And so you've got people wondering if we're on the verge of something greater than what's taking place just in uh, Ukraine. Is it going to be World War III? Um, and so you've got all kinds of talk going on. And so the question is, uh, how does the gospel apply in a situation like this? For us here in our own country, but also if we were in Ukraine, as I mentioned during our prayer time, what if we were worshiping right now and there, there were bombs exploding in the distance that we could hear? Uh, would we be here? Number one, would we be able to worship and praise God and thank God and trust God when the enemy is on our doorstep like it is for believers in Ukraine? And passages like what we have in the book of Revelation here in chapter 7 are meant to enable us to do just that meant to enable us to gather and worship and praise and thank God and and trust God even when the enemy is at the door, even when we don't know if we will be here much longer. We don't know if we're going to be going home to meet Jesus or what will happen. And so uh, Revelation 7 is one of those passages that is meant to bring comfort to God's people when things are very, very difficult I mentioned the whole idea of the gospel. The gospel is something um, that is meant to strengthen us and provide the foundation for our lives um, and not just for the beginning. Because, uh, as we've said before, the gospel starts with God, that God is the supreme good, and therefore he's the one we should be worshiping, trusting, looking to for everything. The problem is man is an idol worshiper in that we don't worship the true God, worship other gods and that uh, as a result has caused us to live in a fallen world that's in rebellion against God and that's why we have wars and we have conflict and we have relational issues is because we're sinners and we've rebelled against God who is the supreme good. We've looked to other people and things for what we need for our happiness and therefore we're in conflict with each other on individual relationship scales, and on global scales. But the Bible says Jesus is the key to all of it, that God sent his son Jesus to be the double cure in the sense that he came to live the life we can never live, die the death we deserve to die, that we might be rescued from the penalty and the power of sin, and that the world might be reconciled to God. And the key thing for us is to respond in faith to what Christ has done. That's why faith is trust in the promises. Faith isn't just believing truth. 
It involves believing truth, but it's trust. It's trusting God for what he's promised to do in every situation. And so in a situation like this, we're called to trust God. Whether we're living in America or living in Ukraine, we're called to trust God's promises. Uh, Even if the enemy is at the doorstep, we're still called to trust God's promises in light of all that Jesus has done for us. And then we're to seek to love even our enemies because we're trusting God's promises. We're not looking to them to do anything for us. We're trusting God to meet our needs. And so essentially what I want to encourage us to do this morning is to realize that whether we're believers in the U.S. or believers in Ukraine, we're one in the sense that God calls us to trust his promises. Hang on to his promises. Don't lose sight of the promises. Well, in the book of Revelation um, and in chapter 7, I want us to think about uh, how God is trying to encourage us, and encouragement means to give courage to, right? To put courage into somebody. And God, through Revelation 7, wants to encourage us in light of whatever tribulation we might find ourselves in. And it's helpful if we think about history in terms of pregnancy, talking about Aaron and April about to have another child. Well, One reason um, I think about history in terms of pregnancy is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He talked about um, how things were going to play out after he went back to heaven and what would be signs of his coming. And he mentions the fact that uh, certain things would happen and they would be the beginning of birth pangs, which implies um, a pregnancy, a pregnancy that involved a conception, uh, months of growth, and then early labor, transition, and the final pushing. And so the, the birth pangs refer to early labor. And so how does that apply to history? Well, from the very beginning, at the fall with Adam and Eve, God promised a savior. He said the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent. That was the conception. Conception of what? The birth of the new heavens and the new earth. The birth of the restoration of all things. From the very beginning, from the time of the fall, God said, I'm going to restore everything. I'm going to restore paradise. I'm going to restore my fellowship with you face to face. That has been broken by sin and the fall. So the conception took place right there. And then the Old Testament is like the months of growth until Jesus came. Now, when Jesus came, that's when, he says, labor began. Early labor is beginning. And when I go back to heaven, you're going to experience signs of early labor. And so he talks about things like in Matthew uh, 24. uh, He talks about wars and rumors of wars. Uh, But he says, those things must must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And he goes on to talk about other things. And then he says in verse 8 of uh, Matthew 24, but all these these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And that's the way I see the seals in the book of Revelation, that they are uh, things that God says are going to happen through early labor from the time that Christ came the first time leading up to his second coming. But there there are things that have to happen that are going to happen 
uh, right before the end, and that's what we typically call transition in labor, right? You have the early uh, birth pangs, and then as things get really close to the baby coming, you have what you call transition, when things increase. And that's what I think is talked about when it talks about the trumpet judgments. What does a trumpet do? It announces that something's coming. And so the trumpet judgments in Revelation are announcing that the coming of Christ is near. And that's why Jesus could say in Matthew 24, what's going to happen is going to be like uh, a fig tree. As summer is getting near, leaves are going to be produced. And when you see the leaves on the tree, know that summer is near. Likewise, when you begin to see certain things, realize that my coming is near. And he said that the last generation will be those that see, in a sense, the leaves of the fig tree, which I'm calling the transition, where things are ramping up, things are getting worse, and it's an announcement of the fact that the coming of Christ um, will not be, will be, be within our own generation. Whether or not that is uh, on the verge of happening or not, I don't know. But the last thing is the whole idea of pushing. You go from transition where things are getting really intense to where it's time for the delivery to take place. And I think that's what is pictured in the book of Revelation with regard to the bold judgments. Christ comes back, a judgment falls, and the kingdom of heaven is birthed uh, from all of that. I just kind of give you that quick overview because what we find in Revelation 7 is kind of an interlude between the seals, which are events that are going to take place throughout history until it's getting really close to the return of Christ. So the interlude is meant to say um, both during this time of seals and various things happening that are a part of the process of the birth pangs that have to take place for the coming of the kingdom, um, there's going to be a promise of protection. So whether you're in the time of the seals or or whether you're in the time of the trumpets, you can trust God's promise in light of what he says in Revelation chapter 7. And so let's look at Revelation 7 and get an idea of what's going on here. Um, Again, it's meant to be an encouragement to us Uh, wherever we might find ourselves in redemptive history. Just look at the first three verses and we'll work our way through this. It says in verse 1, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now remember, you can look at Revelation as the picture book of King Jesus. Children like picture books, right? And... You could say that the Revelation is a kind of picture book because everything is communicated to us through pictures. And the pictures are meant to communicate real things. Not just, we're not talking about fictitious things. These are pictures that are meant to communicate real truth, real things, and yet not everything is meant to be fulfilled literally. Um, when we get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to look like a slain lamb. 
right? He's not going to look like that, but he's pictured as a slain lamb in the book of Revelation because it's communicating something very, very important about him to us. And so what we have in Revelation 7 is a picturing of um, judgment. These first three verses are about a coming judgment. We especially can see that in light of what happens right at the end of Revelation 6. Revelation 6 is all about the seals. And the last seal that's spoken of is the sixth seal, which talks about divine judgment. The interesting thing about this is you read this, and it sounds like this, this is the end of the world, right? And in one sense, it is picturing the end of the world, the the final judgment. But in another sense, it's picturing all the things that have happened in history that point to the final judgment. You notice in the Bible, it will talk about Noah's flood, which is something that happened in the past, but is used as a picture of what's going to happen in the end. Or it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, something that happened in the past, which was divine judgment, but is a picture of actually something that's going to happen in the end. And so the language that we have in Revelation 6 is talking about judgment, divine judgment, but it can apply both to temporal judgments that point to the final judgment as well as the final judgment itself. And the question that is asked in the midst of this by people who are under that judgment, they're beginning to see it happening. In verse 16, it says, Fall on us and hide from us, uh, hide, excuse me, from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's the question that's being answered in Revelation 7. Who is able to stand? Stand where? Stand in the ultimate final judgment of God. Who's able to stand and stand forgiven, stand righteous, stand unscathed and unharmed? by the divine judgment. Who is going to be able to stand? And the answer is found for us here in Revelation 7, where you have a picture of four angels who are obviously prepared to exercise divine judgment because it says that they're told by another angel in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. So these four angels have been uh, told by God to harm the earth. Harm in what sense? Bring divine judgment on the earth. And yet, they are told to not do it until the bond servants of God are protected. They've been sealed. So you have this other angel who arises with the seal of the living God. And what is that seal? Well, a seal could be a marker of ownership. And so in this case, God says, I'm going to mark all my people and so that they are identified as belonging to me and they will be rescued from divine judgment. They will not be harmed by divine judgment. Later on in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, it tells us that seal is the name of God and the name of the Lamb. So that doesn't mean a literally literal, you know, writing on our forehead that says God and Lamb, what it means is the name refers to a person's character. And so to be marked is to bear the character of God. And those who trust in Christ, all those who turn from sin 
and entrust themselves to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior bear the marks of Jesus. They bear the characteristics of Jesus, not perfectly, but they have a heart to please God. They are resting in what Jesus has done for them. And therefore, they are seeking to love like God calls us to love. Not perfectly and yet uh, truly and, and really. And so here we have a picture of God promising us protection from judgment. In that day and time, um, slaves often were marked. They were branded, they were tattooed, and many times it was on their forehead. And the owner's name would be placed on their forehead. And so it says, the bondservants, which is literally slave, the slave of our God will imprint upon our foreheads our slavery to God. But it's a willing slavery. It's a glad slavery because uh, it's a picture of having a renewed mind. The idea of our forehead is, is a picture of our minds that it says in 1 Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. And it says in Romans 12 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. It means we've been granted repentance, which is a, which is a change of mind. And so the bondservants or the slaves of God are those who've been rescued from thinking that God is somebody to run away from and now they see God as someone to run to. Um, we've, been, we've had a change of mind, and therefore we are glad servants of the living God because we know it's the right thing, and we also know it's the only thing that will satisfy our souls. And so the picture that we have here is a picture of what it means to be a true believer in Jesus, but it also helps us to see um, the, the people that God is promising to protect in light of the judgment that is to come. And it's interesting, the judgment that is to come is kind of uh, highlighted with regard to the, the fearfulness of it in chapter 8, verse 1, when it says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Just think about that. Heaven is a place where they're singing and rejoicing and praising God Endlessly, all the time. There's great joy in heaven. And yet, there's a picture of there being dead silence in heaven for about half an hour. Why? It's a picture of the seriousness of the judgment that is coming upon the world for their rebellion against God. And so, it's no small thing to be protected from the divine judgment. It is a huge grace and mercy and blessing to be protected. We live in a time where um, people don't recognize their sin and the seriousness of it. We, we watched um, a documentary the other day about a woman named Anna uh, Delvey. I don't know if you've heard of her or not. There's a Netflix show called Inventing Anna. And uh, this is a young lady who went to New York and basically deceived all the New York elites and claimed to be uh, an heiress of a billionaire and and did things to basically um, use them and cheat them out of money and that sort of thing. And someone interviewed her after the fact, after she'd already even spent some time in jail because of it. And she made the comment, she said, the thing is, I'm not sorry. I'd be lying to you and to everyone else and to myself if I said I was sorry for anything 
I regret the way I went about certain things, but I'm not really sorry about anything. And the Bible says that's really true of all of us naturally, that we don't see the gravity of our sin and we don't see the seriousness of the judgment of God that's going to fall on those who reject the Lamb. When it says in Revelation 6, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb is the, is the just judgment of God on those who refuse mercy. And the seriousness of that is reflected in Revelation 8 when it talks about that heaven was dead silent when they thought about what God was going to do to bring judgment on those who rebelled against him and also refused his mercy in Jesus. And so, um, obviously, we need to pray for ourselves that we would see our sin for what it is and what it deserves and that we would rest and rejoice in Jesus. And we need to pray for other people as well, that they wouldn't be like Anna Delvey, who says, you know, I'm really not sorry for what I did. Not really, truly sorry. I wish it would have worked out differently, but I'm really not sorry. And that, she's not totally different from the rest of us. We look at her and say, wow, she's really bad off, isn't she? Uh, Well, the point is, she's just a picture of us. Um, Apart from grace, apart from mercy, that's all of us uh, in regard to our sin against God. Well, this passage goes on and it talks about... um, those who were sealed and uh, pictures them as the counted church on earth. So if you look at verses 4 through 8, it says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So again, the sealing is about rescue from divine judgment being marked off as the people of God. Just like it says in Romans chapter 5, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so the question is, um, are there only going to be 144,000 saved? There there are some um, people who believe that the number of the truly saved or the ultimately saved will only be 144,000. But we just have to remember that uh, these are pictures. These aren't meant to say that there's only 144,000 people to be saved, but it pictures something for us. And there were 12 tribes, which are actually listed here, but listed in an unusual way, listed in a way that's meant to uh, convey certain things. Um, But you had the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Then you also have the 12 apostles in the New Testament. 12 times 12 is 144. Uh, The basic unit of a military uh, unit was 1,000. So many people look at this as the church militant. It's a picture of the church, uh, Old and New Testament, Jews and Gentiles, uh, the church militant, so to speak, on earth, being protected and being abled to fight the good fight 
and uh, to hold strong and not to give in in light of what they have to face. And the, the numbering of them, I think, is also a way of saying that God knows those who are his. And God looks at them just like he looks at the hairs on your head. In Matthew, uh, God goes so far as to say, um, in Matthew 10, uh, that we're not to fear. Three different times he says, do not be afraid, do not fear. And part of the reason he says we're not to fear is because the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, how does God, knowing the number of my hairs on my head, comfort me when somebody's about to kill me? Well, it's meant to say, uh, God knows you so well and wants to know you so well and is so much committed to caring for you that there's not a single detail of your life, not even one hair on your head that escapes his notice. He knows you intimately and he's caring for you individually. You are numbered and everything about you is numbered. And it's a picture of how God cares for his elect. He has a chosen people. He has a numbered people. And those people uh, he has chosen to save from the foundation of the earth. And he promises to take care of his people. He even says in Matthew 24 that the transition period or the tribulation period would be shortened for the sake of the elect. For the, for the numbered people of God, God is going to take care of them and orchestrate that in light of their needs. It's interesting, uh, in my notes, one of the applications that I made is that the encouragement here is to remember that regardless of what our experience has been with our own fathers, um, even if we've been abandoned by our own earthly father, our heavenly father will never abandon us. We may have abandonment issues. We may struggle with anxiety and fear over the future and over whether or not God will be there for me because of things we've experienced in our own lives, even with our own fathers. And yet the picture here is meant to encourage all of us as the children of God to know that he knows us individually and that he will never abandon us. He will take care of us. And that's why it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we're to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. He cares for us intimately and deeply. So we have the counted uh, church on earth, so to speak, pictured on earth. Um, It's interesting that it says John heard about them. He did not see them. Why didn't he see them in pictures? Well, it's probably because they're scattered across the earth. They weren't gathered together in one place. But the next picture is a picture of the gathered believers, and he sees a picture of them. So if you look in verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom 
and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I believe the group that um, is seen in heaven gathered together is just another picture of the group on earth that was scattered uh, in the previous vision of the 144,000, which you could, could consider, like the New Testament says, is the new Israel, the church of God that includes Jews and Gentiles. But this part of the vision says that the church militant, the church on earth that has to fight the good fight of faith, gets the victory. They end up in heaven. They're not uh, destroyed by the wrath of God. They are rescued, just like God promised he would rescue them. And so this is a group from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they're in white robes, which is a picture of justification or being declared righteous and clean and pure before God. They hold palm branches, which is a picture of victory. They've won the victory. The question is, the victory over what? Well, they won the victory over being harmed. Not harmed from the divine judgment, although they were delivered from divine judgment, but they were also delivered from the harm of the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That the real battle in our lives is to trust God and to keep trusting God and not to walk away, especially when things are hard. It's interesting, if you go on in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it says, and they overcame him, speaking of believers, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. All right, they overcame because of what Christ did for them, the blood of the lamb. They overcame because of the word of their testimony, which means their faith in Jesus and what he did for them. And they expressed that faith in Jesus to the point of being willing to die. And the picture that we have in the book of Revelation is, you are victorious if you don't give up and give in when someone threatens your life. If you can hold on to your faith in Jesus, then that is a testimony to your faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus even to the point of death. In Luke chapter 21, uh, Jesus says, interestingly enough, um, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Do you notice what he says there? He says, they will put some of you to death, yet not a hair of your head will perish. So what does that mean? You may have to die for your faith, but you will not perish. Perish means to be destroyed. It means to uh, have to suffer the wrath of God. God gave his only son that we might not perish. Not that we might not ever die, but that we might not perish. And so uh, the picture there is that in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of talk about um, martyrdom 
and people being willing to die for their faith. And yet, they are the ones who are victorious. But many of us will not have to physically die for our faith. The question is, will we die for our faith in other ways? Will we die to following what the world says is the path to follow? Will we die to simply living um, like we want to live and seek to live to do God's will instead? Will we die to ourselves? Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That might mean actually being put to death as a believer in Jesus, or it might simply mean dying to your own will and living to the will of God, regardless of what the circumstances might be. The reality is we're all going to have our faith tested. We're all going to be tested in terms of whether or not we're trusting Jesus as our Savior and we're trusting Jesus as our Lord. And a picture of that, which is illustrated here on this slide, is in the Old Testament where in Daniel chapter 3, you've got three believers in Yahweh who are who by Nebuchadnezzar are thrown into the fiery furnace because they will not worship the golden statue that he's made. And Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace and he sees that there's not just three people, but there are four in the fire. And he calls them out, the three come out, and they still have their clothes on and nothing's been burned and you can't even smell any smoke on them. They've been completely unharmed in the fire. That's what's being promised in Revelation 7, that you will go through the fire. You might even be put to death, but by God's grace, you will be unharmed. Your faith will stay intact and you will not experience the wrath of God. And so that's what we see being pictured for us in this passage. We're our, our faith is going to be tested, just like metals are tested to see, is this real gold or not? And there's the acid test, and there's the fire test, and there's tests you can do to find out, is this metal really gold, or is it just something that looks like gold? And gold, as a noble metal, um, it will not wash away or be burned away or be uh, taken away by acid if it's real, if it's really gold. It will not be removed if you mark it on something, which is a picture of true faith. No matter what the fires of trials are, no matter what we have to go through, our faith will not be removed. Our faith will not die. It will not shrivel up. Um, It will remain if it's truly real faith. And that's why a great uh, parallel passage to Revelation 7 is 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says uh, of believers that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be, be revealed in the last time. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be fail, found Excuse me, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What brings God glory? When you're truly and terribly and sorely tested and you still trust him, you still love him, you still praise him and thank him 
you still believe that he is the supreme good, that he's the treasure of all treasures. When your faith is tested and it survives all the testings of this world, it brings glory to God and it brings good to us as well. And so in one sense, this picture of this vast multitude that's countless, you can't even count the people in heaven uh, that's being pictured here, in one sense, it's a picture of the victory of those saints by faith, by grace through faith. But it's also a picture of the victory of the Lamb. Because that number of people in heaven, a countless number, says that Jesus is going to win the victory over Satan. There will be more people in heaven than in hell. And I believe there are scriptures that talk about that. It, Abraham was promised descendants um, like the stars of the heavens that you can't even count. He was promised descendants like the sand of the seashore that you can't even count. And it tells us in Colossians that Jesus himself will have first place in everything. He will have first place in everything. There's going to be a countless multitude redeemed by the Lamb of God who will praise him forever and ever. And he will have the victory He will not be uh, defeated by the sin and unbelief and uh, the uh, strategies of Satan in this world. Well, let me finish up with the last part of this chapter. It says in verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is a picture of great tribulation, but greater joy. It says that there, there's an elder who's uh, an angel, angelic being in this picture that asks the question, who are these people in these white, white robes? And the answer is the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now, in one sense, the great tribulation is what's going to happen right before the end. But in another sense... There are great tribulations that happen throughout history. In fact, in 70 AD, that was considered a great tribulation for the people in Israel. And yet, like I prayed earlier, all of us, in a sense, go through our own great tribulations. Things that really test our faith. Things that really challenge, do we really believe in Jesus? Is he really going to keep his promises to us? Is he really worth following? Is he really being faithful to me? In light of my circumstances, is he real and is he, does he really love me? And is he really going to do for me what he's promised to do? And so it says all of these, all of those in heaven, aren't necessarily those who literally died or literally went through the great tribulation at the end of the world, but they are all those who came out of their own great tribulation and they are washed and clean and loved 
perfectly and fully. It says that God will spread his tabernacle over them, which is a picture of God basically enveloping us with his presence. Uh, They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. The picture is we will have every need met and every desire satisfied. So that whatever our trials might be and our suffering might be in this world, the reward and the joy will be greater. And that's what Paul can say when he tells us that in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now Paul is talking as someone who was stoned, shipwrecked, beaten with rods, um, suffered more than most of us will suffer. And he says, this is light affliction. Light affliction by comparison. Because the reward, the joy promised us is so much greater than whatever we might go through. And that's why it says in Jude that he will make us to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Greater joy than any suffering we might have to go through. Well, let me um, just highlight some things um, for us to think about application-wise, getting back to the whole theme of of trusting God. If you would turn to Romans chapter uh, 4 and 5. At the end of Revelation 7, it talks about the lamb in the center of the throne. Now think about what that means. What does it mean that the lamb is in the center of the throne? Well, the idea of the lamb is obviously... Uh, a picture of God's mercy to us. The Lamb of God is Jesus, who has died in our place, has been resurrected in our place, and he's the means through which God offers us mercy, the forgiveness of our sins, the gift of righteousness, and the gift of eternal life. And so the Lamb is a picture of mercy, just like the mercy seat uh, over the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. So you've got the mercy seat on the throne. Jesus, the mercy seat, is on the throne. The throne is a picture of sovereignty. God is sovereign over everything, and that sovereignty is being exercised for the sake of divine mercy, so that God is orchestrating all things uh, for the good of his people, to save a people for himself and to protect and provide for his people. And you could say that mercy is at the heart of God's sovereignty. That's what his sovereignty is up to. It's up to showing mercy. Just like the lamb is uh, in the heart of the throne of God, so to speak, his mercy is in the heart of his uh, sovereign rule and reign over everything. And that picture of sovereign mercy is meant to encourage us to hold on to his promises. He's in charge and he's at work saving the people for himself and protecting, protecting and providing for his people. And he calls us to trust his promises. Now, a picture uh, that we have of what it means to trust God's promises is Abraham. And you know the story of Abraham where God said, I'm going to give you a son, and that son will be named Isaac. And yet he had to wait 25 years for that to happen. It tells us in verse 19 of Romans 4, without becoming weak in faith, He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, 
but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So God tested Abraham's faith as he got older and older and older. Um, God said, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. Trust me. Got older and older and older, and the circumstances looked like he wasn't going to get that son. And so at one point, he actually um, listens to Sarah, who says, take my maid, Hagar, and get a son through her. You know what happened as a result of that? We have the conflict between um, the Arabs and the Jews today. Because Ishmael was the fruit of that unbelief in God's promise. It had great ramifications for the rest of the history of the world. And it's the same way in our lives. When we don't trust God's promises, it has all kinds of repercussions through our lives and the lives of others. And so God calls us to trust his promises. And actually, I believe Romans 5, 1 through 5, gives a kind of summary of what God has promised us. And so I just want to give you five things, five things that can give you a maybe a way of getting a grip on what am I to trust God for? in light of whatever happens in my life or in this world. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing is peace. That applies to all the other things. All the other things would not come if it weren't for the first thing, which is peace with God. And what does peace with God mean? It means God is for me. Whereas because I was in rebellion against him before, he was against me. Now he is for me, and therefore I've been forgiven, I've been made righteous, and he will take care of me. And it tells us in Romans 8, in verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Nobody, really. And yet it goes on to say in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, when you're treated like a sheep to be slaughtered, you might imagine that God is not for you. And people will tell you that if God was for you, you would not be treated like a sheep to be slaughtered. God says, I am for my suffering people. And the fact that they're suffering doesn't mean I'm not for them. It means I'm for them in a way they can't fully understand. I'm for them in a way that is part of my mysterious work to bring them greater joy and to fulfill all my promises and fulfill all my purposes. And so peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. He lived the life we can never live, died the death we deserve to die, rose from the dead, and we are forgiven and made righteous through just trusting him. Secondly, it says uh, in verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have peace with God, and secondly, we stand in grace. What does that mean? That means we're in a position where God is continually pouring out his grace upon us. Not wrath, not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve, which is provision, meeting our needs, uh, doing for us what we need done. And that especially means that he's with us. God is with us in the, Holy, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's with us to do what? He's with us to strengthen us. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. He's with us to meet our needs. Matthew 6 talks about the fact that your Heavenly Father knows what you need, and He will add all these things to you. He's with us to enable us to suffer well. Believers in Ukraine need grace to suffer well. And in Philippians 4, it also says, Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. I know the secret of being filled and going hungry. Do you want to know the secret of going hungry? You want to know the secret of going through a war? You want to know the secret of not having everything you need physically and security-wise? Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So God promises that he will provide. He will be with us to enable us to suffer well. Not to rescue us from all suffering, but to enable us to suffer well and, and to strengthen us so that our faith holds true. Thirdly, he promises us not only peace and provision, but pleasures. At the end of verse 2, it says, we exult in hope of the glory of God. So that God promises not only that he, he is with us, he will be with us. Will be with us in what sense? In person. He promises that one day he will be with us in person. We will see him face to face. And seeing him face to face means I will be overwhelmed with love and overwhelmed with joy. Theologians for centuries have talked about the beatific vision, which means the only thing that can satisfy our souls and make us fully and forever happy is to see God to see God face to face so that he is with us like he was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he intends to restore that and to satisfy us. That's why it talks about the lamb who will satisfy us, who will bring us to springs of water of life. That's the fountain of life, which is God himself. He will bring us to God not to a physical river, but to God himself so that we see and enjoy him. It says in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. People are trying to find something that will make them happy in this life. There's nothing in this life that will make you fully and forever happy. But the God who created you can and will through his son. Well, fourthly, He promises not only pleasures that will satisfy us, but he promises us purpose in the sense that there is a purpose for what we go through. Is there a purpose for the believers in in Ukraine being attacked? Yes, the divine purpose is what we sang about earlier, which I appreciate that very much, Brian. It uh, says in um, Romans 5, verse 3, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. To exult means we jump for joy. In our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proving character and proven character, hope. What does that mean? It means like we sung earlier in James 1. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Count it to be joy. How could I jump for joy when I'm going through hard times? How could I jump for joy when the army and my enemy is on the doorstep? 
Because my God, my Father has designed it for my greater joy. I don't have to be afraid of that. That that event may, may appear as an enemy, but it's my friend in the sense that God, my Father, has designed it to meet my needs and to satisfy me forever so that there is a purpose in everything for God's children. He causes all things to work together for good so that we become like Christ, so that we have the joy of Christ. Then finally, perfect love. It says in uh, Romans 5, 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out. What does that mean? Does that mean there's any love left in the cup of God? It's been poured out. God could not love me more than he loves me in Jesus. It's been poured out. He loves me fully. He will love me forever. He promises to love me perfectly. No matter what I'm going through, he's loving me perfectly. He will love me perfectly. And that's why it says in 1 John, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Believers in Ukraine do not have to be afraid. We do not have to be afraid. God is going to love us perfectly. Even if World War III does take place, we do not have to be afraid. God has promised us perfect love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for your word that encourages us. We pray that you would help us to see how what we've talked about this morning, what we've read, applies to us in our own lives, our own tribulation, our own trials, our own fire that we're going through. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you'd grant us grace to hold on tight to your promises. And I pray that whatever comes, that we would be prepared to be faithful even unto death. Whatever that death looks like, whether it's physical death or just death to my expectations or death to my dreams or death to my own will, my own agenda, that we would hold fast to you and that we would indeed continue to trust you for the joy, for the love that you've promised us. Please strengthen our faith. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.